Uh, we're in First Peter, so if you turn your Bibles there, I'd appreciate that. First Peter. We've been discussing the identity that Peter addresses us as, as elect exiles. And what that means is that we are people who are distinctive from the rest of the culture that surrounds us. And one of the things that you'll find frequently if you ever visit people of a different culture is that they have different cultural customs. There's something different about them. Uh, perhaps sometimes people will go to places simply because during the time in which they're there, one of those cultural customs is happening. Have you ever heard of the tomato fights? And uh, maybe witnessed those on, on, uh, on television? It, it looks absolutely crazy, and apparently there are a lot of people who want to go and do this. Or perhaps more crazily, uh, some people want to go run with the bulls and risk dismemberment and great injury. But, you know, you ran from the bull. And I, I suppose it's a great prayer exercise as you're running and uh, depending on the Lord to get you out of your own foolishness. But in any case, people love these sorts of things. I was looking up strange cultural customs Otherwise, and I ran into a couple. One is in Germany. Apparently, in some places in Germany, just before couples are married, they'll get together, members of both sides of the family, who will come together into a certain pre-designed space and take all types of glassware, pots, all sorts of things that will break, and then throw them on the ground and destroy them. And then it is the task of the to-be couple to clean it all up. And apparently, this tradition shows the significance of hard work and what it's going to take in order for a marriage to survive. Picking up broken pieces sometimes. And, you know, I mean, there's, there's some meaningfulness there. It's a little bit odd, but it's what they do. Or in Spain, a small northern community in Spain take part in what they call baby jumping. They call it El Calacho to keep the devil at bay. Men dress as the devil, run between, and jump over infants, sounds quite dangerous to me, who are laid on mattresses along the streets. And this apparently is to ward off devils, and we think, boy, this is a little bit odd. In Greece, they throw babies' teeth on the roof of the house. And you say, boy, that's really weird. But just imagine the context. You're sitting there in Greece, and... Somebody's child has a tooth just come out and they throw it on the roof and you say, that's really weird what you guys do with baby's teeth. And they say, what do you do with them? <laughs> uh, never mind. Let's move on to another conversation. You see, we have our weird cultural customs too. Have you ever thought about how weird it is that on a certain day we all dress up well, maybe not all of us, but, but many people in our culture dress up in various costumes and our kids go to certain doors and knock on them and ask for candy. Have you ever thought about how weird Halloween is as a, as a cultural custom? All this to say that every culture has its distinctive marks. And I would argue that one of the cultural distinctive marks of Christians, remember, Peter is designating us, we are members of a group, we are 
erase ourselves. We are a separate identity of people who have a shared hope and vision. And he says, one of the things that marks us, that's distinctive, is in this text. And I've titled the message this morning, Rejoicing in Exile. And I'm simply going to put it this way. One of the cultural marks of Christians is that they rejoice in trial. They rejoice in life difficulty or in the midst of life difficulty. Not necessarily because of life difficulty. But they rejoice in the midst of it and even very frequently because of it. And you say, well, this is a bit odd, isn't it? Well, let's take a look at the passage we have here in 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 6. Peter begins with the words, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's the passage we're going to be looking at today. And the element I want you to pay attention to here concerns the fact that Peter is asking us to rejoice in our trials. Is he alone in this? He's not. Two other apostles indicate to us that we ought to rejoice in trials. Here's the book of James, chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you fall into various kinds of trials. Now, that isn't what it says, is it? Yeah, that's, that's what it says. Or how about Romans 5.3? He says, there are many things in which we rejoice. We rejoice in the salvation that God has offered. But then he says this, not only do we do that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. In our sufferings. So one of the distinctive marks of believers is that we rejoice in our trials. Rejoicing in exile. Indeed, notice what he says here in this passage in verse 6. In this you rejoice. Now I'm going to make an argument that here he's actually not talking about rejoicing in the trials yet. He's going to talk about that in just a second. But he says, in this you rejoice. This refers back to what we learned about last time. And you'll remember last time we asked the question, because I think Peter was addressing it. If, in fact, we are elect exiles, we're chosen to be strangers in this world. Is that chosenness worth the strangerness? Is that election worth the exile? And Peter's answer, we discovered last week, is that yes, it is worth it. Because through it, you receive a new birth. And through that new birth, you have a living hope. You will live forever. You have a lasting inheritance that can never be taken from you. That is your possession reserved in heaven for you. You also have a sure deliverance. Those who are Christ, he will never forsake. He will never leave. And so Peter says, election is worth it. But then he draws our attention. He says, in this you rejoice. In the new birth you rejoice. In the blessings 
of the new family you've been given. You rejoice, though now, for a little while, you endure all kinds of grievous trials. And so he's building this elect exile identity. Maybe I could put it this way too. Last week, in the first couple of verses, he was really emphasizing the left side of that, the chosenness. Look how blessed it is to be chosen. This week, in the passage we're looking at, he's focusing on the exile side of things. What does it mean to live as an exile? It means to live in a time of trial and testing. And how then do we balance this identity between being elect and yet living as an exile, living in a difficulty? Because especially in the American context, it's popularly imagined, I think, by most, that if, in fact, we are rightly related to God, if we're pleasing to him, then what's going to happen to your life? It's going to be a cakewalk. Everything's going to be beautiful and glorious. There's going to be no challenges, no trials. Oh, my friend, if we believe this, we have been far too much influenced by our culture and our culture's ideas than we are by the Scriptures. Paul even has the audacity to say, Yea, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. There's a difficulty that comes along because and through being believers. This passage bookends this entire section, verses 6 all the way down to verse 9, with the theme of rejoicing. And so the the theme begins there in verse 6, in this you rejoice. You see it down there at the end of verse 8. He says, though you don't see him now, you believe in him and rejoice, notice this, with a joy that is inexpressible. You have this joy that you can't even express. There's just, there aren't words to express it. And you are filled with glory. We'll talk about that in just a bit. But he has these, this theme of rejoicing on both ends. And my argument is going to be that what he gives to us in the midst of this are the reasons we ought to rejoice even in the midst of trial and difficulty. Why should we, in difficult times, still be able to rejoice? Now, we might say, well, this... You know, if it's a minor difficulty, yeah, I can rejoice, but not in the major things. That, that's just, you can't do that. But I want you to notice the language Peter uses here. Again, verse 6. In this rejoice, you rejoice, though now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials. The language here, he says you have been grieved. Grieved refers to an intense mental or physical challenge that you're going through. He then says it's various trials. What does he mean by that? He's he's indicating that there are different types of trials. In this room right now, I know, I know some of the situations, certainly not all of them, that some of you are walking through. Cancer. Is that a grievous trial? Sure is. The pains of growing older, mental decline, challenges of that nature. The challenges of children who are beginning to wander 
and not doing the things that they were taught. The difficulty of losing a job or simply just seeing how much things cost and wondering if you can continue in light of all this taking place. And add upon this a hundred other things that I haven't mentioned here, and I couldn't mention the specifics of the trial you're going through. You say, I, I know what a grievous trial is. I'm in the midst of it. And then Peter here says, rejoice in the midst of these. Why then would we rejoice even in grievous, severe mental or emotional distress? How is it possible that we would do so? And this is a mark of Christians. How could this be? Well, let's consider what the Apostle Peter tells us. The first reason we rejoice is this. Because trials are given by God. Now, you may miss this because it really isn't something that is made explicit in the text. It's implicit in the text. It's there for sure. Notice what he says here. He says in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. You have been grieved through various trials. Let me ask you a question. Who determines whether something is necessary? Peter is addressing his audience and he recognizes that there are times of life. And you've experienced this, haven't you? There are times of life in which it really is smooth sailing. And there are times of life in which there are great and grievous trials. And he says that there are times where it is necessary that we endure such things. Indeed, Peter is elsewhere going to say that God ordains our very trials. Notice what he says in verse 17 of chapter 3. Chapter 3, 17, he says this, It is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. The implication of that passage is that sometimes God's will is this, that you would suffer for doing good. You say, why would that be? We'll talk about it in just a second. Or consider chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer, and don't miss this, let those who suffer according to God's will, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter here balances two ideas. We're enduring suffering, and yet it's at the hand of a faithful creator. He is sovereign over our trials. Why would God allow us to endure trials and temptations in this life? Why would he allow us to go through difficulty? Because in many ways, each of us would say, I think God shouldn't do that. If you look in Hebrews chapter 12, you don't need to turn there, but I'll read the passage to you. I want you to consider what the author of Hebrews tells us about God's love for us. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Now let me pause there. When you hear the word discipline, what do you think of? I tend to think, most of us think, discipline is that sort of thing that happens after we've done something wrong and then we're disciplined. 
But the biblical perspective on discipline is that sometimes it isn't what you've done wrong and then you're criticized for. But sometimes it's just a matter of having to do certain things. One of the things that my wife and I have been disciplining our children on this summer is that they need to do certain activities every single day. Certain things like brushing their teeth, brushing their hair, cleaning their room, making their bed, all these sorts of things. And so we came up with this fantastic idea, shared from Facebook or something, I don't know, to come up with these sheets of paper. And they say something, summer rule list, but there's a list of things on there that they have to do before they can ever look at a digital screen. You think my girls like that sheet of paper? Oh, they bemoan it. But you know what it's doing? It's teaching them. It's disciplining them. It's, it's helping them to grow in their life. And, and this is what Hebrews is talking about here. Discipline isn't just retroactive after we've done wrong, but it's the sorts of things that guide us, shape us, fashion us to go the right way. And this is what the text says, that discipline is something the Lord does to the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you like sons. Now what son is there to whom his father does, that father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children, not sons. Besides this, the writer of Hebrews says, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, that is, our physical parents, disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. My suggestion to you this afternoon is that trials are a means God uses to shape us and fashion us, to discipline us, to make us into the people that he wants us to be. Now, the obvious challenge here, let's all be honest with each other, the obvious challenge isn't so much when we see the reason why we're going through a trial and difficulty. And we can see the end game. And we say, okay, I see why we're, I'm going through this trial and difficulty. There's, there's the end. There's the thing I need to learn. Here's all the good. But have you not gone through a trial in which you cannot even conceive what the good may be? Maybe you've heard the phrase stated, all things work together for good to them that love God. And this is straight from the Bible. It's true. But then you examine some trial, some circumstance of life that God has allowed in your life, and then you say, what about that? What about it? What am I supposed to do with this? Well, let me just say for, for now that we consider a couple of biblical passages. Just think of Joseph with me. As Joseph was enduring all of the trials, could he have explained to someone else, oh, you see... Here's the reason I'm going through all of this. He couldn't until much later. Now, of course, 
There's also the example of Job, who, in my estimation, never could answer that question. And yet God had his own purposes in mind, even in Job's suffering, even if you and I have a question still remaining about why God allowed what he did in Job's life. One of, uh, one of the things I think we have to keep in mind when we consider trials and God's sovereignty over them is this point. And it, it was stated by uh, a pastor in New York City. He said, if you've got a God big enough to be mad at for the suffering you endure, then you've got a God big enough to have a reason for that suffering that you never thought of. Let me say that again. If you've got a God big enough to be mad at for the suffering you endure, then you've got a God big enough to have reasons for that suffering that you've never thought of. And is that not true? Can we not put our trust in the Lord to know that though I do not know why he's allowing this trial, I know him. And so I will trust in him. Or we can put it this way in Romans 8.32, Paul says this, in the midst of trial, what do we say? He who did not spare his son for us, he who proved his love beyond all doubt, how will he not with him give us all things freely? In other words, if you need proof of God's love, you've been given proof of God's love, despite the difficulty that he has allowed us to come into. So, the first point is this, we rejoice because trials are given by God if necessary and if God deems it necessary, then it is. And so we, I think we learn three things from this. First, trials are not evidence of God's displeasure. Trials are not evidence of God's displeasure. We need to understand this because I think there are times where we as believers enter into some difficulty and the immediate cry of our heart is, why, Lord, what did I do? And sometimes God's answer from Scripture is, you didn't do anything, but I'm shaping and fashioning you. The second thing we learn from this, trials will not overwhelm us. And you say, now how does that follow from, from what we've said here? If God has purposes in our trials, certainly his purposes are not to see us crash and burn. His purposes are to give us that difficulty that's tempered and meted just for us, just for the strength level that we are at. The father who determines that he's going to teach his child to swim and throws them in the water, though they do not yet know how to swim, is also there to reach down and grab the child when the child struggles to a point where they can no longer swim. And it's evidence of the cruelty of the father if he does not do that. Our God is not a cruel God. And accordingly, as he allows us to go into trial, trials will not overwhelm us as we seek to persevere under the good hand of our father. A third thing we learn from this and the one that I focused on here is that trials are purposeful. Oh, if I could emphasize this, uh, even more I would. No trial 
you will endure in this life is ever wasted. Even if you can't see it, and even if, catch this, even if the reward for that trial, the blessing from that trial never comes in this life. Do you see, that's a part of the reason that we as believers are distinctive in our culture is because we believe there's a world to come. And God can make right in that life what was wrong in this life. So, the first reason that Peter tells us we should be able to rejoice in trials is because God is sovereign over them. But that's not it. There's a second reason, and this is a central point that he makes in verse 7. We rejoice in the midst of trials because trials prove and purify our faith. Trials prove and purify our faith. Notice with me in verse 7. He's just said, you rejoice, in tri- you rejoice, though now for a little while, you've been grieved by various trials, so that, here's the purpose clause, here's why you're enduring trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith. Oh, more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found, result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter here uses what is a metallurgic analogy, something very common in the ancient world. And uh, probably most towns would have some sort of smithy, some sort of person who would, who would take metals, heat them up to a significant degree such that they would melt. We know that Solomon and many of the other kings, they had lots of gold. And one of the things you've got to do with gold is you've got to purify that gold. You've got to heat it up to intense levels. And Peter uses this as an analogy of trials in our lives. And he says, we have to rejoice because trials prove and purify our faith. I'm going to suggest that he's giving an analogy in which there are two sides of this. That trials are like the purifying of gold in two ways, and trials are unlike the purifying of gold in two ways. First, trials are like purifying gold, for they reveal whether faith is real. Notice what he says again in verse 7. He tells us that the tested genuineness of your faith. Have you ever heard of fool's gold? It's something that if you, if you don't get a chance to hold on to something, if you can't kind of test it, you look at it and it looks exactly like gold. And if you buy it, well, unfortunate for you, you just lost all your money because it's worth nothing compared to real gold. And here it tells us that the purifying gold shows whether it's in fact real. If you were to take fool's gold and melt it, it has different properties than real gold does. So the purification process actually tests the gold to see whether it's real. And the analogy then is this, that trials test our faith. Our faith is the gold that's put in the crucible, heated up. And what rises to the surface shows whether our faith is genuine or not. Just recently, I was teaching a class on the Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, Pilgrim's Progress is one of the most classic books in all of English literature. Uh, Historically, it's been 
I stated that it's the second most printed book in, in all English, right past the English Bible. I don't know if that's the case anymore, but for a long time it has been. <clears throat> I was teaching this class on that, and, and we were talking about John, uh, Pilgrim as he left the city of destruction. If you remember the story, you know what happens. As he's leaving the city of destruction, he takes a man with him named Pliable. And Pliable comes along with him, and Pliable really wants to go to the celestial city because he hears about all the good things that are going to be there. What a blessing. Oh, and he says on this pathway, hey, tell me more about all the good things we're going to experience when we get there. And as they're journeying along, they fall into the slough of despond, or this pit of despond, this despair. And as they're both in the pit, Pilgrim way deep in the pit, uh, Pliable just barely in the pit, Pliable says... This isn't worth it. If this is the difficulty I'm going to face on the path, then I'm turning around and he heads back to the city of destruction to be mocked by those to whom he returns. This to me is a good reminder of what the scriptures teach. <clears throat> that trials, what they do is they, they reveal whether our faith is real. And perhaps you know of others who have said they believe, but when a trial comes along, when their faith is tested by hardship and difficulty, instead of remaining faithful, they abandon the way. And one of the things that trials then reveal to us is the genuineness of our faith. And here's what Peter says. So that the tested genuineness, it's been tested and has been found to be genuine. And so trials test our faith in that way. But there's a second thing he says, or the analogy, I think, indicates to us. Trials are like purifying gold, for the result is a purer form of faith. When gold is heated up in that way, one of the things that happens is that the dross, the impurities within the gold, begin to rise to the surface and can be scooped away. And what you get after it rehardens is a purer form of gold. And in the same way, trials, just as we were saying in the last section, trials are God's means of purifying our faith, of revealing where there are impurities in our faith and helping us to resolve those. But he says something else, and I think the, the analogy actually has an opposite side too. He says that purifying faith is unlike, or uh, purifying gold is unlike Purifying faith in two ways. First, trials are unlike purifying gold, for the proven faith is more precious than gold. Do you know how much gold is worth? I was just watching a video, because I was thinking about an illustration to try and express this. Someone was walking around with one-tenth of an ounce of a gold coin. I mean, it's just this small little gold coin. He was walking around with one of those and a candy bar. And I don't know if he was on a college campus, I'm not exactly sure, but he was walking around and he was saying, hey, could I give you something? You could take either one. Throughout the whole video, I don't know, 10, 10 people maybe, took one of the two. Guess which one? They, they all took. They all took the candy bar. You know how much the candy bar was worth? Well, I don't know, today probably $8, but, you know, not much. Do you know how much that gold coin is worth? 180 bucks. A tenth of an ounce of gold. 
An ounce of gold is worth $1,800. It's crazy expensive. It's worth a lot of money. We know that throughout history, gold has always been worth a lot of money. But here's what Peter tells us. If you had a choice between purified gold and purified faith, let me tell you what I choose 100 times out of 100. Purified faith. It's worth more. And we'll see why in just a moment. But he's making this comparison. It's a purified faith. But then he makes a second comparison of a negation. He's like, he, he says, trials are unlike purifying gold, for gold will perish while faith endures. Notice again, that's what he says here. He says, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Now, perhaps we have a chemist in here, or maybe somebody who studied science, and you think, well, wait a second, Peter, let's slow down here. Gold is one of the only stable elements we have. For us non-scientists talk, that means that gold will never perish. Uh, most things, if you set them out, eventually it decays over time. Maybe it would take 50,000 years, 100,000 years, whatever it is, it, it'll decay. Gold is one of those things that will never, ever, ever decay. So what does Peter mean then when he says that gold will perish? I think actually he's talking about the, the time period that God has promised in the future. Second Peter refers to it this way, that one day when God opens the books, then behind him, all of the elements of the earth will perish. They will all melt away. God promised that he would not one, once more destroy this world through a flood, but he did promise it'll be through fire, and it will destroy this entirety of creation. The point is this. If we're to invest, what should we invest in? If you ever listen to investing strategies, one of the things they're always saying is, Gold, gold, gold. Get your hands on gold. It'll never go down. Gold, gold. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but you hear it a lot. And Peter says, faith, faith, faith. Get your hands on faith. It'll never perish. It goes into the world to come. And gold, oh, it may be worth a lot now, but there's a day when it'll be worth nothing. Indeed, the place I'm going, the streets are made of it. So Peter tells us that we should rejoice in trials because they're God-given. Second, because trials prove and purify our faith. Third, we rejoice in trial because trials lead to reward. Now there's some debate in this passage, but notice in verse, verse number eight, or at the end of verse number seven, he's just used this metallurgic analogy. He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, Notice then what he says, may be found. So your tested genuineness of faith would be found to result in praise, glory, and honor. When Jesus returns. So the question is this, who receives praise, glory, and honor? Our immediate reaction, our immediate, and I think this is a good reaction, our immediate reaction is always to say, that God's going to receive the praise, glory, and honor. I'm convinced that Peter's actually saying that there's going to be praise, glory, and honor for believers who are faithful in this age. Now, praise might not be the, the most challenging side of this. Uh, th there is to be praise given to those, or even honor. Uh, you know, I think of those who've gone through military experience. When I hear them, when I see them, 
I give give praise. I give honor to that sort of a thing. And I think in the same way Scripture is talking about those who walk through the difficulties of this life, that one day when the Lord returns, there will be praise and honor for that faithfulness. The one that I think most of us struggle with the most is the idea that we will receive glory. But notice what Peter himself says. Turn in chapter 5, verse 1. Here he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as, notice this, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. He is a partaker of glory. Glory is coming his way. Or how about verse number four? He says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, most commentators believe that when Scripture talks about crowns, it's not literally talking about crowns. It's rather saying the crown which is glory. That is, you will receive glory at the coming of the Lord. Or in chapter 5, verse 10, he says this, And after you have suffered a little while. By the way, notice the similarity of context of the passage we're dealing with. After you suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ. Coming back to this passage, I think this is what Peter said. Rejoice in trials, because God will never waste your trial. And you may not have cause to say, here's why he did it in this life. Perhaps, The Lord is just giving you an inheritance in the one to come. Trials result in reward. And for this reason, we ought to celebrate even in the midst of difficult trials. Remember, the timing of this reward is at the return of Jesus. And this reminds us that we we are a forward, hoping, and thinking people. Fourth, We rejoice because trials are temporary. Trials are temporary. And you say, well, how do you know that? Notice again, verse 6, in this rejoice, in this you rejoice, though now, for a little while. For a little while. Notice how he ends the the book. Chapter 5, verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, while the God of all grace who called you into his eternal glory in Christ will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. In other words, after you've suffered for this little while, he's going to return. And it's going to be all worth it. We rejoice because trials are temporary. And you say, well, what do you mean by temporary? 100 years? And you say, but that's a long time. Is it really? Hal was talking about the, the uh, actually he was lying about not being 55 up here. And, uh, <laughs> but I was reminded that I, I, I had one of those milestones the other day. I, it, um, I was at McDonald's and they gave me a senior coffee. <laughs> and I just thought, man, I made it to another milestone. <clears throat> 40 years old. And it just feels like I, I was 22 days ago, you know? Life is, life is fast. 
This life is temporary. And if the Lord lets me live to 100, I'm convinced I'm going to think it flew by. But you know, there's something distinct about the life to come. We sing the song that we'll sing to him for 10,000 years. And then we'll have just begun. It's an eternity. You say, well, what does eternity mean? I don't know, but it just isn't limited by time. <laughs> it's not what I'm experiencing here. And so can we go through the temporary to get the eternal? You know, I think that understanding time frames can really help us work through difficulty. This week, I'm going to be going to the dentist. And the only thing that makes me go is, that, is I know that it's only going to be a half hour. <clears throat> if it had this unending time limit, I wouldn't be going to the dentist. I'd be asking for dentures. <laughs> just, just put them in now, right? But I know that there's a, there's a time period. She's going to start the cleaning process, and it's only going to take this long. And she's going to do this, and it's only going to take this long. There's a time frame. And in the same way, as we think about the trials of this life, remember, it's only for a little while. And then eternity will be here. And you will say it was worth it all. The final thing I would simply say as we come to a conclusion here on our fifth point. We rejoice in trials because trials lead us to Christ. Notice with me, verse 8, it seems a little bit odd that he ends the paragraph this way, but let me try and explain why he does. He says, you're going to receive praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he says this, though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you don't see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He says here, you've not seen him. I think what he's saying is, I saw him, but you didn't. Right? Because remember, Peter literally walked with the Lord. And he says, though you didn't see him, you love him. And though you don't right, even right now see him, you believe in him. Do you see what that is? That's genuine faith. We actually, just like Peter's audience, we did not see him, and we don't see him now. But we love him. We believe in him. And for this reason, we rejoice with joy inexpressible. Why is that? And I think it's, again, this reason. What Peter's saying is this, that Jesus makes our trials worth it because with Jesus, we know that our trials are not the final, the final note of our life. The cancer that takes our life is not the final note of our life. There's a life to come. And he has promised that in that life to come, that all the suffering, all the trials, all the difficulty that we face in this life, as we've been faithful and as that refining fire has melted that gold, that, that, that really heavy fire that's painful, as it's purified us, it's made it so that one day we will see the one for whom we love and it will be worth it. So Peter concludes telling us this. Yes, indeed, it is worth, or I'm sorry, yes, indeed, we should rejoice in trials because God is sovereign over them. He is sovereign. They're given by him. 
They prove, they purify our faith. They lead to incredible and, and frankly, mostly undeserving reward. They're temporary. And they lead us to Christ. How is it then that we are so distinct, so separate from unbelievers? It's, it's one of the ways that we show the distinctiveness of ourselves from the world is this, that when we experience difficulty and trial, we can express joy. Now, please don't hear me say we can express happiness. Oh, you can be deeply saddened and joyful at the same time. And that joy bubbles forth not so much by giggling or any of those sorts of things, but by a firm resolve to remain faithful to Christ and to know in the midst of the greatest of difficulties that everything's going to be okay. How can we, as believers, hear the words, you have cancer? And be saddened, for sure. But nevertheless, have a deep and abiding joy that I know Christ and that everything's going to be okay. It's because we're not tethered to this world. This isn't our hope. Our hope is in the one who sits enthroned at the right hand of God. The one we do not see, but we love. The one we do not now see, but we believe in him. And we know that whatever his hand gives to us is good and righteous. And we can't wait to be with him. So, friend, be different. Embrace being different. You are different because you have a hope, a hope that lives beyond this age, so that in the midst of trials, we can rejoice. Father, thank you that you've given to us such blessings like a text like this. Oh, Lord, I'm reminded that there are many in this room who are going through deep and challenging circumstances. Would you use your word to give them hope in the midst of this time? Would you help them in the midst of their trials and difficulties to lean on Christ, to know that he is good in the midst of all of this? Oh, Father, we long to be in your presence, to see you face to face, and we know that day is coming, but help us in this little while, in the time between, to rejoice even in the midst of our trials, because we know you are sovereign over them. In Jesus' name, amen.